Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets legislation and regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers a period from April 1st to April 29th. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, on April 5th, the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs held a hearing entitled Keeping Markets Fair, Considering Insider Trading Legislation. The hearing included testimony on S-3990, the Insider Trading Prohibition Act introduced by Senator Jack Reed, of Rhode Island. The bill would establish a statutory prohibition against insider trading. Currently, there is no federal statute on the books specifically banning insider trading, and the courts have been left to define what constitutes illegal insider trading. Over the years, the courts have used varying interpretations of anti-fraud statutes in order to decide insider trading cases, resulting in a common law approach to the issue. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill similar to S-3990 in May of 2020. S-3990 generally provides statutory authority for the prohibition against securities trading as well as related communications to others by a person aware of material non-public information and who derived a direct or indirect personal benefit from that information. The bill further states that it is not necessary for such a person to know specifically how such information was obtained. Hearing witness and Columbia Law Professor John Coffey praised the legislation for establishing a clearer definition of insider trading and preventing insider trading law from expanding through disparate court decisions. However, Professor Coffey also urged lawmakers to remove the personal benefit standard from the bill's language, saying that it presents a major obstacle to the prosecution of insider trading. More specifically, Professor Coffey said the personal benefit standard as drafted has three drawbacks. One, it protects and immunizes defendants from liability in some cases that involve obviously wrongful behavior. Two, it makes disparities more likely under the fact-specific character of the standard, and three, it provides a disincentive for prosecutors to investigate in detail if their only chance of winning a conviction depends on finding a fact that can be easily hidden. Professor Coffey recommended that the language in the bill be revised to specify that the standard required that the material non-public information be obtained wrongfully, causing a breach in fiduciary duty. He warned that, quote, if the personal benefit standard is retained, I'm afraid that in its practical effect, the bill would be more a step backward than a step forward, unquote. Hearing witness and New York University law professor and former SEC commissioner Robert J. Jackson Jr. praised the legislation for addressing key gaps in our outdated judge-made insider trading law. His testimony highlighted two of those gaps. One, trading on information obtained through cybersecurity hacks, 
He explained that establishing insider trading liability under current law generally requires the government to show that information was obtained in breach of a duty or by way of deception. But many hackers attack companies not through deception, but by simply overwhelming their defenses. The bill would close this gap by clearly outlawing trading on information obtained through cybersecurity hacks. Two, insider trading at foreign firms listed in the United States. Professor Jackson stated that executives of foreign companies, which are domiciled in countries including China and Russia, and now raise significant funds for American investors by listing on U.S. stock exchanges, are not subject to prompt disclosure of transactions in their company's stock. He urged the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission to reconsider foreign firms' exemption from the insider trading disclosure rules that American companies must follow under Section 16 of the Securities Exchange Act 1934. He suggested that Congress should make clear to the SEC that requiring transparency of foreign firm insider trading is a priority. During the hearing, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts noted that members of the U.S. Congress can use material non-public information obtained on Capitol Hill to profit by buying and selling stock. She said she's introduced legislation that would ban legislators from owning or trading individual stock and limiting their ownership to index funds. Number nine, on April 7th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission supporting rules proposed by the commission in February that would require registered private fund investment advisors to provide their investors with information about fees, expenses, and performance. Specifically, the CI letter backs requiring private fund advisors to provide each of their investors with a quarterly statement containing certain information about fees and expenses, including fees and expenses paid by underlying portfolio investments to the advisor. CII also asked the commission to go a step further that are requiring private fund advisors to provide pro rata fee and expense reporting at the limited partner level upon request. To help investors more easily monitor the performance of their investments, compare the performance of the private funds and their portfolios to each other and to other investments, CII backs provisions in the proposed rules that would require standardized fund performance information to be included in their quarterly statements. The letter follows CII's support in October 2021 for a related rulemaking petition filed by the Institutional Limited Partners Association. Number eight, on April 4th, Republicans on the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, Urban Affairs unveiled a discussion draft of the Jobs Act 4.0, a laundry list of more than two dozen proposed bills intended to ease regulatory requirements for entrepreneurs, public companies, broker-dealers, and others. 24 of the 29 bills included in the draft already have been introduced in the U.S. Congress. Some of the more pertinent measures in the bill include the following three provisions. One, the Reporting Requirements Reduction Act of 2022. This provision would amend the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 to allow that any public company required to file quarterly reports may elect to instead file the report on a semi-annual basis. Number two, 
Restoring Shareholder Transparency Act. This provision would amend the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 to make a series of company-friendly changes to the proxy system, including new requirements on proxy advisory firms and freeing companies from the Securities Exchange Commission's shareholder proposal regime under Rule 14A8, unless they agree to be subject to requirements. And number three, the Dodd-Frank Material Disclosure Improvement Act. This provision would repeal pay ratio and pay versus performance disclosure mandates under the Dodd-Frank Act, as well as certain other disclosure provisions of the 2010 law. Number seven, on April 7th, President Joe Biden nominated two individuals to succeed U.S. Securities and Exchange Commissioners Allison Heron Lee and Elad Roisman. Mr. Roisman departed the SEC in January, and Commissioner Heron Lee said she plans to leave the commission as soon as her successor is in place. Jaime Lizarraga would take Ms. Heron Lee's seat. He is a senior advisor to U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, California. Mark Uita an SEC attorney temporarily working with the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs minority staff would fill Mr. Reisman's seat. Number six. Number six. On April 12th, at a series investor briefing, U.S. Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler said that the SEC's landmark proposed rules requiring Registered companies disclose climate-related information are consistent with SEC rulemaking traditions, as well as with the Commission's tradition of letting companies make decisions about materiality. Chair Gensler also noted that the proposed rules are in sync with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Framework and the Greenhouse Gas Protocol Framework that many companies already use. The SEC chair explained that the Commission's tradition of environmental-related disclosure started in 1964, when the SEC began to offer guidance on disclosure risk factors, continued when it adopted requirements related to management discussion and analysis in Form 10-K, and culminated in the existing environmental-related disclosure rules of the 1970s. Since that time, the SEC has elaborated on these requirements repeatedly and issued guidance on climate-related disclosure in 2010. Chair Gensler also noted that many companies are deciding on their own to disclose this information. He reported that the SEC staff, in reviewing nearly 7,000 annual reports submitted in 2010 and 2020, found that a third included some disclosure related to climate change. In addition, many countries already have started to develop reporting regimes that build on or incorporated the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Framework, including Brazil, the European Union, Hong Kong, Japan, New Zealand, Singapore, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. The SEC chair emphasized that the decision whether to set target plans, transition plans, scenario analyses, or carbon pricing and to report on each of those is entirely up to companies. Quote, thus, the design of the proposal is consistent with those long traditions and the law with concepts of investor decision-making and related materiality 
and with what companies are already doing based on the task force on climate-related financial disclosures and greenhouse gas protocol frameworks, unquote. Discussing the specific requirements and the proposed rules, Chair Gensler noted that companies would be required to disclose the following two items. One, certain disaggregated climate-related financial statement metrics that are mainly derived from existing financial statement line items in a note to its financial statements. This would include the impact of the climate-related events and transition activities on the company's consolidated financial statements. And two, companies scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions, emissions that result directly or indirectly from facilities owned for activities controlled by a registrar. Chair Gensler noted that some registrants would also be required to disclose scope three emissions, the emissions from upstream and downstream activities in the company's value chain, if such emissions were material or if the company had made a commitment that referred to scope three emissions. Finally, the SEC chair urged companies and investors of all sizes to provide the SEC feedback on its climate disclosure proposal, which remains open for public comment until May 20th. Chair Gensler stated that, quote, we look forward to and will benefit from your public comment on all the key areas of the proposal, including but not limited to how it approaches disclosure regarding strategy, governance, risk management, targets, financial statement metrics, and greenhouse gas emissions, unquote. CII currently plans to submit a comment letter in response to the proposal. Number five, on April 13th, CII responded to a March 24th request from U.S. Financial Services Committee Chair Maxine Waters of California. Chair Waters asked for detailed information on the significant actions that America's financial institutions and businesses have taken to end their relationships with engagements in Russia, with the Kremlin, and with businesses that support the Russian government. The CI's letter noted that CI conducted an educational session to help its public pension fund members better understand and comply with the sanctions imposed by the international community, and it has served as a forum for members to discuss approaches to the crisis. Correspondents also reported that CI is not aware of any public fund members who are making or considering new direct or indirect investments in Russia. For those few public fund members that do hold interest in Russia-linked investments that were made prior to the invasion of Ukraine, the letter explains that those investments have declined precipitously recently. As a result, those CI members have a legal obligation to ensure that they do not cause imprudent losses by divesting in a fire sale. In addition, Asset sale restrictions put in place by both the Russian government and the international community prevent legal liquidation of those investments. CI informed Chair Waters that virtually all public pensions are coordinating the responses closely with state and local officials. Those pension funds are governed primarily by state law, and some state legislatures are considering or have enacted legislation to restrict investments in Russia. Number four. On April 8, CI submitted a letter to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission seeking clarification of a section of its March 2020 proposed amendments to Rules 13D and 13G. That section provides an exemption for investors such as CI member funds, permitting them to continue to communicate and consult with each other and other investors and jointly engage with companies and execute certain transactions without being subject to regulation as a group. CI writes that this clarification is important 
the CIA members who often communicate with each other and with other shareholders regarding corporate governance issues at portfolio companies. Letter recommends that any revision to the proposed rules ensure, at a minimum, that communications related to vote no campaigns or efforts to change management should be allowed to continue unabated. More specific, I mean, CI suggests that the language of the exemption be revised to make clear when the exemption is not available to investors who are communicating with each other and not intending to change or influence control of the company and are not directly or indirectly obligated to take such action. The letter explains that being a member of an investor coalition does not obligate an individual fund, either directly or indirectly, to take specific action unless that fund chooses to do so. Number three, on April 11th, 40 U.S. House Republicans sent the letter to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission urging the commission to table immediately its recently proposed climate-related disclosure requirement. The legislators wrote, not only would this proposal add additional red tape and bureaucracy that would be extremely burdensome, if not impossible, for many public companies to fully comply with, it would also far exceed the authority that Congress explicitly granted the SEC. Letter argued that rather than providing investors with information needed to make informed investment and voting decisions, it would only be used to smear these companies. Looking at the issue more broadly, the lawmakers questioned if the proposed disclosure regime would only further exacerbate our current energy crisis and do nothing to help everyday Americans heat or cool their homes or lower prices at the gas pump. The legislators suggested that efforts be refocused on domestic energy production and weeding the United States off of energy supplied by hostile nations. The letter also asserted that the proposed disclosure rules are out of the SEC's historic purview and that Congress is responsible for setting climate-related policy. Number two, in an April 11th ruling, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia reactivated a lawsuit in which institutional shareholder services is asking the court to invalidate rules issued by the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission in 2020 that redefined proxy solicitation to include the provision of independent proxy voting advice. The complaint also seeks to invalidate the SEC's 2019 guidance that served as the basis for the 2020 rule. At the SEC's request and without opposition from ISS, the case was held in abeyance or temporarily placed on hold for much of last year and through the first quarter of 2022 as the commission reconsidered the 2020 rulemaking. Although the SEC proposed modest changes to the new rules last fall, the proposal failed to address the core issue of ISS's lawsuit, which is the reclassification of proxy voting advice as a proxy solicitation. In denying the SEC's motion for continued abeyance, the court noted that the commission has not proposed any change to the definition of the word solicitation from the 2019 interpretation and guidance and the 2020 rule amendment. Its lawsuit, ISS argues that the SEC's 2020 rules exceed the agency's statutory authority because they unlawfully regulate 
proxy voting advice as a proxy solicitation. The court has conferred May 27th at 1 p.m. for oral hearings on the issue. And the number one most significant development in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation for the period from April 1st to April 29th occurred on April 5th when CII sent a letter to the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services to encourage a markup of CII's draft bill, which generally would establish a mandatory seven-year sunset as a minimum listing standard for dual-class companies listing on U.S. stock exchanges. The letter explains the draft bill includes a simple, flexible solution to ensure investors have a voice at the companies in their portfolios. While the draft legislation encourages long-term alignment with the one-share, one-vote principle, it would allow companies to go public with multi-class stock structures. Under the provisions of the draft bill, listed companies could keep that structure in place in perpetuity as long as investors from each class vote separately on a one-share, one-vote basis to approve and reapprove the dual-class stock structure at least once every seven years. The bill would not affect listed companies currently trading on U.S. exchanges. The following day, on April 6th, the California State Teachers Retirement System sent a letter to the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services and key members of the California congressional delegation expressing support for CI's draft bill and urging the committee and the U.S. Congress to prioritize adoption of the legislation. That completes my monthly corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I.org. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.